Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent, grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself, Associate Editor Toby Young and Canadian Editor Jonathan Kay. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm Jonathan Kay speaking to you from Toronto. For years now, Quillette authors and podcast guests have been trying to get their heads around the central question of why so many institutions in our society, especially in the arts, academia, and journalism, have succumbed so completely to rigid progressive orthodoxies on race and gender. In many cases, whole disciplines and NGOs have now been co-opted by doctrines such as critical race theory that have very little resonance with ordinary people. In a recently published pair of essays on his popular Substack site, Richard Hanania of the Center for the Study of Partisanship and Ideology offers a surprisingly simple explanation. When it comes to taking control of the commanding ideological and political heights, progressives simply want it more. In the United States, his statistics show, liberals now donate more money to federal political candidates, sign more petitions, attend more protests, act more aggressively to block dissident views on social media, and even shun people with divergent political opinions at a greater rate than conservatives. You know those locker room interviews where the coach of a losing sports team shakes his head and laments that the other team, quote, just wanted it more? Well, these days it seems the team in politics that wants it more is hardcore progressives. You can find the first of Mr. Hanania's essays, which was published on April 21st, under the title, Why is Everything Liberal? Cardinal Preferences Explain Why All Institutions Are Woke. I spoke to him a week later over Skype. Here are excerpts from our conversation. What do you mean by the term cardinal utility? I'm not an economist, but economists, basically, they have this concept where you have ordinal utility um, in which people have rank preferences. So, you know, I like an apple more than a banana, uh, more than a pear. Uh, cardinal utility is how bad you want something to happen. So it takes into account sort of intensity of preferences. So in this context, my argument about institutions and why they're liberal the basic point, I mean, and the simple idea is that elections operate on ordinal utility. Everybody's vote counts equally as long as you care enough to vote. You know, I prefer A to B, you prefer B to A, we cancel each other out. So elections are the world of ordinal utility. And I think in the United States, probably elsewhere too, the fact that conservatives get uh, about half the votes in elections and win about half the time uh, makes them sort of feel entitled to have some kind of say in the culture. But the problem is ordinal utility is only useful for understanding elections. The rest of the world, cardinal utility, uh, tends to be as much as important or even more important. Sometimes political scientists and economists would explain protectionist economic policies, which hurt society overall, but would provide a lot of advantage for a particular industry. And they would say, well, quantitatively, more people will be hurt by this kind of tariff than would be benefited. But the people who will benefit will benefit a lot. Is that a somewhat analogous phenomenon? There's a similarity there, but I think you have to be careful. So this is uh, Mankar Olson, collective action, uh, the problem of groups. So everyone's behaving um, in their economic interest. 
this doesn't have anything about rational economic interest. I reject the idea of mass politics, this liberal conservative divide. This is more along the lines of who is motivated enough to do stuff that is, in almost every case is not rational at the individual level. It's not going to get you anything back. It's not going to even increase the outcome. You know, if you're one person, you donate to an election, you're, you're not going to decide the election. But, you know, the fact that people are motivated to get involved, that differs by ideology and partisan identification. You do make a point of saying that the phenomena you're describing really have very little to do with how much people will benefit from the actual outcomes of these elections. This is a point actually progressives have made in regard to Trump. They've talked about how a lot of his policies actually would disadvantage some of the same people who vote for him. But the argument against interest is more fundamental than that. It's like, it doesn't matter if Trump is going to benefit you or not. You voting for Trump or donating money to Trump or Biden or anybody has zero outcome on the election, right? And you're looking at it as just, it makes you feel good to do it because you get this sensation of indulging your desire to have a certain candidate win. Exactly. But you're not, you're not even helping the candidate win because your one vote doesn't determine if the candidate wins. So it's not even that. It's more just the act of voting or the act of giving money feels good or gets you status or something. This is why the Olson collective action, the, the economics, the, you know, the idea of a free trade versus protectionism, that has people acting in a logical way to try to get something because you organize, you lobby, the interest is specific enough and large enough that you actually get something out of that. But this is, I'm trying to understand mass political level where one protester or one uh, person voting or one person donating money is not going to have an influence. The only way to understand mass politics is sort of this emotional, uh, you could say, expressive utility. You have a very interesting data visualization, which I'd like you to talk about, where you show some of the biggest companies and employment sectors in the United States, and you have blue and red bubbles showing how much they donated and how much their employees donated. The chart that I present has the 100 employers and looks at the employees of those employers. And this includes government and non-government, so it's not just businesses. So it includes like the University of California system in the U.S., which is one of the biggest employers, the U.S. Department of Defense, and then stuff like AT&T, Walmart, Bank of America. And basically you find that every single one of them has more employees donating to Biden than Trump in 2020, except for the NYPD, the U.S. Marines, and the U.S. military. So people took this to say, oh, look, corporations and big institutions are liberal or siding with the left. Isn't that crazy? Well, you know, I said, this doesn't look right because there should be some balance here. And there's also a figure which shows by profession. And it's not as unbalanced, but, you know, the vast majority of professions are donating more money to Biden than Trump. So I go and I look at how many people in the entire population are donating money to Biden versus Trump. According to one estimate that doesn't take into account the last week or two of the election, it's like 61% of donors had given to Biden and 39% given to Trump. Okay, now you see why every institution donates more to Biden because more people are donating to Biden, right? So for instance, there are a big red, that is to say Republican, data bubbles here for business owners and truckers. You have construction workers, homemakers, and then the big blue bubbles are teachers, lawyers, nurses, engineers. And then the other graphic, which is way more lopsided, the corporations or the entities whose employees have donated to Biden versus Trump. And then, as you said, there's only three red bubbles here, the military, the Marines, NYPD. And then you have these gigantic blue 
gas giants, University of California. But then you've got like Amazon, Big Blue Bubble. Does that cover rank and file employees and also the executives? Because of course, within Amazon, the executives and the rank and file are going to have incredibly different interests. When you donate money in the U.S. directly to a candidate, uh, you list your occupation and your employer. So that's what this is drawn from. So Amazon would be anybody who listed Amazon as their employer. Uh, same for every one of these things. Yeah, I, I don't go into the differences between the two charts. I just point out that both of them have more donations to Biden, which gets into the general point that Biden has more uh, donors overall. But it is interesting, yes, that the, there is a difference in that the large corporation, you know, the large institutions are all Biden. And then for professions, it's still the best majority. And you see actually the, the profession, you see the size of the bubbles to indicate how many people within each category or institution are donating. So there's a lot going on here. There's institutions versus individuals. Uh, there's overall level in the population of giving money to Biden versus Trump. And there's these differences within institutions. We're discussing here this very popular Substack post you put up. And then you had a follow-up post where you circle back to the issue of corporations. Conservatives traditionally have been able to depend on the corporate establishment, in part because traditionally they've pitched to middle America as consumers. What's happened over the last couple of years is that what's more important for many high-tech corporations especially isn't pitching to middle America as consumers, it's pitching to Ivy League America to get the best talent to design software products and because of network effects, if you can get the top few dozen engineers in a field, you can lock in your advantage. And it doesn't matter what middle America thinks about your product because you've got a digital monopoly in that field. You described 2016 as being this sort of phase shift year where a lot of pieces fell into place for a progressive dominance of ideological spheres. Could you describe for me how flipping corporate America, how that has figured into this analysis? The original piece, I go through the evidence showing that liberals just care more. They're donating more money. They're protesting more. Most important, they're going into professions like academia and journalism. Um, liberals are more likely to not talk to people over politics, to block people on uh, on social media, to cut off friendships or not date someone based on their politics. So all these are indications that of the cardinal preferences, liberals, you know, care more about politics than do conservatives. The question of woke capital is we've only seen corporations really take this sort of consistent and overwhelming turn to the left in the last four or five years. So my theory would predict that four or five years ago, we would have seen some shift in this mobilization gap between liberals and conservatives. And so you gather a bunch of data and you see it's actually the case. So for example, protesting, we have data from 2012 and they asked Americans if you protested in the last four years. And the ratio of total liberals in the country who had protested to conservatives was 1.5. So liberals were protesting a lot more. By 2016, that ratio was 9.7 to 1. 10 liberals protesting in the last year before 2016 to every one conservative. And the ratio goes down a little bit, quite a bit, actually. 2020, 3.6. Still a lot, still overwhelming. When you ask people, did you sign a petition in the last four years? The liberal conservative ratio was actually 0.9. So slightly more conservatives were signing petitions in 2012. And then 2020, liberal to conservative ratio in signing petitions is 1.7. And then the final piece of evidence is that if you look at how much money each party has raised 
in uh, contributions to the president, the House, and the Senate in the United States. I, we have data going back from 1990 up until 2020 election cycle. In almost every election cycle, it was pretty much tied. You look at the lines, uh, this is another graph. 2008 was a huge fundraising bonanza for Democrats because of Obama. McCain was a lot less inspiring. So 2008, Democrats really outraged Republicans. But every year besides that, from 1990 to 2016, you, you can't see a difference. They look almost exactly tied. In 2016, liberals uh, take the lead. That's when Hillary is uh, running against Trump. 2018, they keep that lead. 2020, they have the lead again. So now you've had three straight election cycles where Democrats are also raising more money. So you have, you have donations, you have protests, you have uh, petitions. And on all these fronts, you see an increase in mobilization among the left around 2016. And where does business come in? Well, business was the last domino to fall because business, I argue, is more representative and cares more about what the average citizen thinks than most other institutions. Tech may be a special case in that there's like walkouts over policy. If you're a regular listener to the Quillette podcast, you'll be familiar with BetterHelp, one of our original advertisers. Well, thanks to everything that's happened since early 2020 and the stresses that the pandemic has put on everyone, the online therapy services at BetterHelp are more relevant and in demand than ever. BetterHelp will help you unlock the tools you need to help with motivation, depression, anxiety, battling your temper, stress, dealing with insecurity in relationships or at work, whatever you need. Especially at a time like this, no one should be anxious about admitting that they're going through normal human struggles, because you deserve to be happy. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. And you don't even have to see anyone on camera if you don't feel comfortable doing so. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. Join the millions of people who are seeing what therapy is really about. And Quillette Podcast listeners get 10% off their first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash Quillette. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Quillette. Thanks to BetterHelp for their sponsorship. And now back to the Quillette podcast. Yeah, I'm not sure it's just about the walkouts from existing employees. I think the bigger phenomenon is at the recruiting stage before these people are even employees at all. A few years ago, I did some reporting in the artificial intelligence field. And some of the companies I reported on, their entire business model revolved around access to a small group of elite recruits from some of the best programs. In many cases, these are very specialized programs. The people they were recruiting and the schools themselves had hyper-progressive politics. And it was just well known that a lot of these people they were trying to recruit had dozens of job offers and they could afford to select a company based on political criteria. And so effectively, even before these people walked into the door of the company, they were dictating the company's political posture. And it didn't matter that there were 100 people, I don't know, in the loading dock or in the mailroom, and they had completely different political attitudes that were more mainstream. All of those people could be replaced. The people you couldn't replace are the people with the hyper-progressive attitudes. And so they effectively just dictated the politics of the place. And they did this before they walked in the door. 
because it was a precondition for them to be hired in the first place. I think there's something to that and definitely that matters in these industries. At the same time, it doesn't apply to all businesses, but even within tech, compared to say what the New York Times and say the tech media wanted, a lot of tech companies were very slow to engage in censorship and doing what the New York Times demanded. So there was very, very little censorship on Twitter before 2016. Facebook didn't ban explicit white nationalism until 2019. They said, you know, you can't have violence and you can't have, you know, racial source or whatever. But even explicit white nationalism, they held out until 2019. So there was some kind of hesitancy that's completely collapsed in the last four years. Uh, but I don't even see tech. I don't see business as a leader. I see business as more of a lagging indicator. There is, in some sense, a, a cost to signing petitions or going to a protest. It's a cost in your time. And so it's one way you could measure how much cardinal utility people get out of these causes. But what's interesting is in the age of social media, there's also a bigger benefit you can get within your political subculture, because 20 years ago, if you signed a petition, your name appeared on some clipboard somewhere, and that was it. If you went to a protest, you're an anonymous participant, unless you won the lottery and some local journalist interviewed you. Now, though, you go to a protest, you take selfies with your friends, you post them on social media, it enhances your brand within that political subculture. Uh, even if it's something as simple as signing a petition, you know, some, some of these petitions will say, do you want your name to appear publicly? And a lot of people say, you know, damn right, I want everybody to know that I signed the petition. Is that a factor here? Yeah, I think that's right. And I, I think it's interesting to think about how this would influence people of different ideologies differently. You know, there's nothing that necessitates that. Uh, when you go online and you're posting selfies of yourself, it has to be for some kind of political cause. You know, some people post selfies of themselves and they're just, you know, showing off their kids or whatever. That that happens. There's been a subset of the population, I think, that's really just latched onto politics as sort of central to their identity. And they're, you know, sharing it on social media and that. And there's less people on the right. And part of it is, you know, the, the age thing, the fact that conservatives tend to be older in the United States. It's interesting because Zach Goldberg's work on the Great Awakening uh, has it starting around 2012, and that's around the time that Twitter becomes really, really big. And so I think you have these feedback loops where there's a radicalization. I think a lot of uh, the media got on Twitter and they were uh, they started interacting with these activists, and I think the activists sort of pushed a lot of people to the left. So I think Twitter has been huge. You talk about the data showing that the faculty at American universities tends to skew toward progressives. You actually make the point that this isn't just about hiring bias. This is actually, to some extent, about who are the kinds of people who now go into not just academia, but also activism and journalism. Let's say you graduate from Harvard or whatever, and you take a job as a writer at Fox or Vice or The Nation or something like that. You're not going to get a lot of money, and you're going to get very poor job security. A lot of these people, like, they're true believers. It's not just a sort of bias or bad faith or censorship. It's that people in knowledge industries skew radically to the left. The lifetime earning prospects for academia and journalism, absolutely awful. Given, you know, somebody with the, the IQ to succeed in journalism or academia, if you just wanted to maximize your lifetime earnings, those aren't the fields you'd go into, especially academia. You have you have six years of your PhD, you're earning minimum wage work, sometimes less. I mean, the, the, the stipends are ridiculously low. You do that for six years of your prime. Then you jump around from uh, postdoc to postdoc. Even becoming a professor, you don't make that much money for your education, right? So it's, and, most, and, and a good portion never get that tenure job, which is pretty much the only thing you could do with a PhD in the humanities and some of these other fields. So it's just radically irrational decision 
to go into academia and probably, you know, journalism, which I know less, but, you know, from everything I hear is the same. And there is a market on the right for conservative journalism. This is why Fox News has destroyed the competition. It took a really long time to get a, a conservative news channel. But once you had that right wing news source, it got a lot of attention on Facebook. If you look at the top uh, most shared things on Facebook, it's often Ben Shapiro. And usually the top five or the top 10, almost all of them will be from American conservative movement. So there is a market demand for conservative news. There just aren't a lot of conservatives who want to go into these fields. You talk about how 2016 was this really big quantum shift year in some of the things you're talking about. Is it possible that what's going on is that Donald Trump, who who even conservatives have to acknowledge, is a really weird political candidate for the Republican Party? It's no surprise that a whole bunch of people were highly mobilized to give money and go out in the streets and sign petitions against this guy. Is it possible that for all this analysis we're doing, this is in large part a reaction to a uniquely off-putting politician who really was hated by a majority of the population and not just progressives? Yeah, I mean, I, I do consider that this might not be permanent. Like I said, the Republicans uh, earned about an equal amount of money up until 2016. 2016 to 2020, Democrats have raised Republicans. Uh, these other gaps have gotten larger. It's completely possible that I think it's the most likely explanation, actually, that just Trump came along and this happened. Now, you have to also, to be fair to Trump, Republicans started raising more money. They didn't keep up with Democrats. Republicans got more votes in 2016 and 2020 than they did in 2012. But your analysis suggests that Trump really will do long-term damage the conservative movement because he mobilized tens of millions of people to push corporate America to cement progressive hegemony over the commanding heights of American thought and culture. Well, he mobilized these people, but we don't know how permanent that is. So there was a lot of conservative protesting in 10 years ago in the Tea Party movement, and it sort of melted away. And so the question is, do those people stay mobilized? And now a promotional message from another podcast, The Jordan Harbinger Show the podcast where human interest and the world of ideas find their ideal balance. There's a reason Jordan's show was named a top podcast by Apple in 2018. Recent episodes have brought listeners issues like the heartless art of forced organ harvesting, schizophrenic mother, a duty like no other, and why we believe weird things by Quillette author Michael Shermer. If this sounds interesting to you, and I don't know why it wouldn't, look up The Jordan Harbinger Show wherever you listen to your podcasts. That's H-A-R-B like Bob, I-N-G-E-R. And now back to our Quillette podcast. You're president of the Center for the Study of Partisanship and Ideology, but you were formerly at Columbia University. I believe you were at the Columbia University School of International and Public Affairs. This is the elite progressive Ivy League sphere we've been talking about. Have you personally managed to stay friendly with a lot of these people who you cross paths with at Columbia? You, know, you, you had some data in there, which I actually found very kind of shocking about just how many progressives say they just they don't want to have anything to do with people who don't share their political opinions. These phenomena we're describing have metastasized into the social and even the romantic sphere. Have you managed to bridge the partisanship gap and maintain your old relationships with people in the Ivy League? 
it's you know it's interesting because I my focus has always been international uh, relations and my views on international relations are actually more identified more with the left than the right. I tend to be anti-war, anti-interventionist. So my views didn't really stick out as radical on the things I was focused on. You know, as far as you know, uh, friends and stuff like that. I, you know, I do think that I thought a lot differently than a lot of people, and it probably hindered having relationships with people who thought differently. I mean, I think it's just natural that you gravitate towards people you have something in common with and people, you know, through my think tank work that I've met and through uh, through Twitter, you know, I've tended to make friends more there than I did Columbia or at UCLA. Yeah, I, I think I, I did feel a <laughs> bit of alienation. You know, I think it, I think it's natural and I, you know, I don't, I don't blame anyone for that. I can't say that anyone tried to cancel me or tried to get rid of me or anything like that. I just think it's human nature. Richard Hanania is president of the Center for the Study of Partisanship and Ideology. The article and its follow-up that we've been talking about is called Why is Everything Liberal? Cardinal Preferences Explain Why All Institutions Are Woke. And you can read that on his Substack. Thanks so much for joining us on the Quillette Podcast. Appreciate it. Thanks, John. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to quillette.com where you will find more content.